Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to listen to another Tech Stuff classic. This episode originally published February 3rd, 2014. It is titled, Tech Stuff Listens to Dolby. Yep, we're going to learn about the Dolby sound system and how that works. So let's listen to this classic episode. If you've ever owned a stereo in the history of ever, you've probably seen the Dolby logo, which is that well, certainly, V and D. Yeah, yeah, certainly in the history of the past uh, 30 years. Yeah, which I think for most of our listeners, that, that qualifies. Uh, I know that we have some listeners who maybe have owned stereos that are older than 30 years. We appreciate you as well, of course. So Dolby, uh, who was this guy? What did he do? Well, he was a, an electrical engineer famous for his work in developing audio technology, which was used in everything from movies to uh, to studio equipment to the stuff that you could buy, like consumer electronics. Mm-hmm. And um, he has absolutely no relation to the musician Thomas Dolby. Known for uh, She Blinded Me with Science. Right. Uh, apparently, Thomas Dolby took that stage name based on Dolby. On yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. His his actual name is Thomas Robertson, but his stage name is Thomas Dolby, presumably taking the name because of Dolby Laboratories and Dolby himself, Ray Dolby. Uh, Ray, by the way, had, uh, well, still has a son named Tom. So also a little confusing. A little confusion there. Um, but apparently, at the, and, and you uncovered this little tidbit that, uh, that Thomas, or yes, yes, Thomas Dolby, the musician, stage name person, had yep. uh, an agreement laid out that he would not name any electronics equipment under the Dolby brand. Right, right. He could not, he, you know, there was some initial um, tension between Dolby Labs and Thomas Dolby, but that eventually got kind of uh, settled down, and the agreement essentially was kind of a gentleman's agreement. It was that Thomas Dolby could perform and and record under the name Thomas Dolby as long as he didn't put out, like, the Dolby Stereo, because that could be confused with the actual Dolby Labs brand. Right. So uh, let's talk about... Tom, uh, not Thomas Dolby. I mean, that's a totally different podcast that we could do because Thomas Dolby has been very active in digital distribution. But Ray Dolby. So uh, he was born back in 1933 in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. His father was a salesman. Yep. Ray Dolby, as a kid, got interested in electronics. He apparently, according to one report I read, at age nine, rigged up an electronic signaling system that would allow you to uh, alert someone similar to using something with Morse code. I imagine this is something similar, like like a, a simple switch and uh, something that either made noise or lit up. There weren't details about exactly what it was that uh, he made. Yeah, I think that this was from an interview that he had done with a uh, member of the um, IE, the IEEE, uh, yes. back in the 80s at some point. Yes. So I didn't have extreme details, but I found that very charming. He was also fascinated as a child by the uh, mechanics of music. As a kid, he apparently played clarinet and remembered being um, just engrossed by the vibrations of the reeds. And in fact, that fascination with music would go throughout his entire life. His sons would talk about how he was not just an engineer, nor did he ever wish to be seen that way. He was an adventurer at heart and a musician at heart, uh, someone who who truly appreciated the sound of uh, talented artists making music. And that was part of what he was so 
uh, interested in when he got into electronics was being able to have a device that could record and play back such stuff without any other artifacts getting in the way. So uh, in high school, he uh, joined the projectionist club, so clearly a big man on campus. Uh, now, obviously, these are the the kids who are really interested in cinema. They're interested in, in all aspects of uh, Electronics, films. technology, yeah. you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. And through that, in 1949, he met one... Um, Alex Poniatoff. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, he, he was the founder of a company called Ampex Corp. Yep. And uh, and so here's here's the deal. Here's the scenario. Alex Pontioff comes to town and he's going to have a meeting. And in or- part of this meeting involves showing a film and he needs to have someone to run the projector. So he reaches out to the local school and says, hey, can you send me a kid who can run the projector? And Dolby volunteers. He says, this sounds like something I would really like to do. So he comes over and runs the projector and he and Poniatoff hit it off. I mean, they, you know, it's clear that Dolby is truly interested in technology and Ampex was really getting into building recording devices, both for um, industry, like geophysical recorders, and also for, you know, entertainment industry as well, eventually. So he, Dolby, shows this incredible interest in the subject matter. And Poniatoff is obviously impressed and tells Dolby, hey, you know, kid, listen, I know you're in school and all, but uh, tell you what, on weekends and on vacations, if you like, you can come and work for me. And Dolby says, sure. (laughs) Yeah, Dolby was only 16 years old at the time and wound up working a little bit more than I think that they originally expected. Uh, Dolby said that he was far enough ahead with his credits in high school that he wasn't really worried about getting into colleges. He figured he had it in the bag. So he wound up at a certain point spending like three hours a day at school and five hours a day at Ampex. It turns out that eventually Dolby's not so so concerned about staying in college either, at least initially. Right. So, yeah, his he was obviously really eager to get hands on experience with this. It was, you know, he didn't want to just learn theory. He wanted to actually be working and he found it really uh, exciting. By 1951, he was attending San Jose State College in California and had picked the major of electrical engineering. Uh, and he was still working with Ampex at that time. And within the first year of his schooling, actually just after, he was just about to start his sophomore year, Ampex began to develop something that would revolutionize the entertainment industry and the home uh, uh, entertainment market eventually, the video recorder. So videotape recorders were not a thing yet, right? This is a brand new technology, and he had the opportunity to work on an early implementation of that. Videotape had the potential to be a truly disruptive type of technology, which, of course, as we all know, that's what happened. I mean, you, you yeah, saw it happen yeah. again and again. But he had the chance to get in on the ground floor, and he was so excited by that that he made the decision to drop out of college and uh, work full time at Ampex. But that also meant that- uh, right. This was during during um, the the Korean War was yeah. about to really ramp up, and mm-hmm. he was he's spoken about being very aware at the time that this decision would make him eligible to be drafted, and being a little bit concerned about that, which would turn out to be. A fair concern. Yeah, he, um, you know, by not being a college student, that made him eligible for the draft. And in fact, he was drafted and he went into the army uh, on April 1st, 1953. He was drafted into the army. And during this was during the Korean War. Dolby later said that uh, it was worth it because he got to work on the video recorder. <laughs> Meanwhile, even, you know, Dolby 
was removed from the picture. He he had to go and serve in the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ampex ended up shelving the video recorder project, not because Dolby was removed from it. I mean, Dolby himself said, it's not because I wasn't there. That's not why they did it. They did it because the company itself was in financial trouble. There was a recession going on at the time, and the company was hit pretty hard by it. Mm-hmm. And so to uh, to save money and and to cut back on things that were, you know, Obviously, big projects that could pay off, but it would be a long-term gain. They decided to, to pull back on those. So this was one of the projects they shelved. So he goes off and he joins the Army. Uh, while he's in the Army, he teaches classes on electronics. Because why not? Yeah, he still hasn't completed college himself. But on January 1st, 1955, he was discharged from the Army and rejoined Ampex, which had started uh, de- decided to go back and 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 launched the video recorder project again, so he was working on that. Uh, he also went back to college. Uh, this time he did not go to San Jose State. He went to a little uh, college called Stanford. Yeah. Um, and he completed his degree at Stanford. So by 1956, the video recorder goes into production. Uh, so this is a big deal. And Dolby, I think his name is even on one of the patents, at least one of the patents. Yeah, for yeah. Video this recorder. is Ampex's specific video recorder. Yes. 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 And it's the first to yeah. go into production. So Dolby goes to then uh, he, he applies and is accepted to go to Cambridge University to work toward a Ph.D. in physics. Um, he would finally receive that in 1961. Yeah. And uh, and of course, you know, obviously, Ph.D. in physics, he's looking at acoustics, right? That was his main focus. No. That's not his main focus. <laughs> his main focus actually was in X-rays. Long he, wavelength X-rays. He yeah. Was, yeah, he was he was convinced that this was what he really was going to do for the rest of his life. He was going to work in experiments and build things that worked with X-rays. Uh, apparently at the time, very popular guy in Cambridge, partially because he had access to professional recording equipment. And there were a lot of musical groups in the area that wanted to be able to record stuff, but they didn't have access to professional recording equipment. You would get these really poor recordings. So he started getting invited to all sorts of events and he would have people over at his place to play music. Now, keep in mind, this is, you know, this is great stuff for Dolby, who loves music. You know, mm-hmm. this is, again, him continuing this uh this keen interest in music. So I'm sure he found it to be a wonderful time of his life. Oh, sure. Uh, He was also making a big impact on the community in general. He, uh, around the same time, was consulting for the UK's Atomic Energy Authority. So uh, getting some good stuff on his resume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, this for someone who was uh, interested in making the first video recorder, he's already branching out quite a bit by this time. Uh, Also, in 1962, he meets Dagmar Baumert. Uh, in Cambridge, and she would become the love of his life. I mean, every report I ever read about the two of them it's talked very about sweet. very it's... sweet. Talked about how at parties they were always right there, you know, backing each other up, and they 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 complimented one another in various ways. So she was actually from Germany. She was in Cambridge uh, for a summer program mm-hmm. when they met, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. We'll we'll talk more about them a little bit later on yes, too. Yes. 
So, um, but then in 1963, this is so, really cool. Yeah, uh, Dolby read about this opportunity in a newspaper for uh, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, aka UNESCO, as mm-hmm. most people would know about it, um, to to go to India yep. and help uh, consult to to build up a little bit more of a, of a kind of infrastructure. Yeah, scientific laboratory infrastructure, specifically in the Punjab re- region, which is known as a very culturally rich. Area And he spent two years there. And while he was doing that, he continued to be really interested in creating uh, equipment that would be allowed to allow you to make high fidelity audio recordings. Well, he had brought one of those uh, professional level Ampex. I think it was the Ampex 600 Mm -hmm. tape recorders along with him and uh, would would invite musicians to come play at his house so that he could experiment with recordings. Yep. And uh, and he started to uh, really be bothered by something that is inherent in magnetic tape recordings, analog recordings, which is that you get this hiss sound, particularly if you're playing the tape at lower speeds. And we'll talk more about uh, that as well, because in 1965, uh, once he had concluded his two year stint with uh, UNESCO, he decided to go back to London. Uh, there was a dressmaker factory uh, I assume it was a factory for dresses, not for dressmakers. Like, uh, I don't think they actually built dressmakers at the I, factory. I think the robotics wasn't quite as uh, advanced at the time yeah, for that. I don't that, think so. so. You're probably so, right. Uh, yeah, he, he rented essentially what was a corner in an old factory and created Dolby Laboratories. He was using $25,000 in startup money, which was what he had saved plus borrowed from other folks. And it had a grand total of four employees when it first started. And their first product that they were working on was something called signal-to-noise stretchers. Now, that's the technical name for what Dolby created. However... Uh, they are, to this day, called Dolby's. Yeah, in the industry, they are called Dolby's. And it didn't take very long for that to happen. So the whole point of signal-to-noise stretchers, it, it kind of comes in the name, signal-to-noise. So if you think of something that's been recorded to magnetic tape, the signal is whatever it was you were trying to record, right? Right. Noise is noise. It's stuff you don't want. It's artifacts. It's it's static. It's yeah, it distracts from what you were trying to capture. So if your goal is to create a recreation of the moment that a sound was created, then you want to reduce that noise as much as possible. And so this was a, a, a method, really, of recording and playing back stuff so that you would reduce that noise uh, so that it was inaudible. It was unnoticeable. And we'll talk about how he did that in the second half of this of this episode. But anyway, this was, you know, really meant to be kind of a, a side project. It was meant to be the thing that allowed him to make, you know, to, to fund the other things he was going to do, specifically X-ray experimentation. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, don't be hit on something that a lot of people found really fascinating and valuable and took over his life. Well, even even at the time, very high quality media like a like, like an LP, like a record um, yeah. were recorded from a master tape, a, ma- a master magnetic tape. Yeah. So this impacted a huge segment of a few different industries. Oh, sure. If your master tape has a hiss on it, then that hiss gets transmitted to every other copy that you make. Right. So if you're able to create a system where you remove that hiss 
so that you have the highest quality master tape. Then whenever you are uh, making a new copy, then you are it's there across. You're copying the, the hiss as well. Yeah. So if you if you can get rid of the hiss, that's awesome. And that's why it ended up being such a big deal. Um, and so early on, it was really focusing mostly on on uh, studio level quality. Right. We're talking professional recording studios, not something that you would find in uh, your average uh, playback device that a consumer would have. Right. Uh, right. Right there. Their first customer was Decca Records. Yeah. Yeah. It ended up being a, a pretty important customer. So. Decca Records, they come up and they they say they want to use the Dolby system on a series of recordings uh, made by Vladimir Ashkenazi uh, of Mozart piano concertos, which, you know, already it's speaking to Dolby's heart. And so Dolby says that, uh, you know, he, he realized that the noise reduction, which he thought was going to be that little side project, was become, going to become uh, the main thing he worked on for the at least the foreseeable future. So 1966... Dolby marries Dagmar. So uh, they end up eventually having two children, Tom and David. Uh, Tom is a novelist and a journalist and an editor, and David sits on the board of directors for Dolby Labs. So they're both very Aww. successful. Yeah. Um, in 1968, Dolby is convinced by a man named Henry Kloss, who at that time was president of the KLH Research and Development Corporation, to create a consumer version of his signal-to-noise stretcher technology. Ah, uh, right, because up until this point, it had all been these these really high-end, pretty expensive versions for for that uh, professional studio, right? Yeah. For that, yeah, for doing commercial like, market, yeah, like doing those master tapes, right? Mm-hmm. It was it was meant as a as an industry thing, so it was. You know, originally Dolby was thinking that his stuff that he was working on, it, it would trickle down to consumers, but in a way that the consumer would never notice. Or in a way that the consumer would never have any direct participation in. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause, you know, the consumer would be able to enjoy the benefits by playing something and not hearing and the going, hiss. Oh, that sounds better than that other thing. Right. But, but they mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to create their own stuff. Right. right. Well, Klaus ends up saying to to Dolby that, hey, you should really make a consumer version of this. Dolby says, well, there's not really a market for it. I can't see consumers jumping at this. So then what Klaus does is something kind of sneaky to convince Dolby otherwise. He goes back and he tells some of his engineers, hey, guys, let's kind of reverse engineer this. Take Dolby's Type A, what would eventually be called the Type A Dolby's, mm-hmm. um, and reverse engineer it so that we can make a consumer level of our own. They do that. He then takes that to Dolby and says, look at what I did. I took your stuff and I made a cheaper version for consumers. Someone else is going to do that and they're going to beat you to the market. So you should do it first. And Dolby says, huh, how about that? You're right. I should do that. And so Dolby that goes to create a consumer version of his signal to noise stretchers called Type B. So Type A is for the professional studios. It's, right. it's more sophisticated. It, it covers a greater range of sounds, and we'll go over that in the second half too. Mm-hmm. Type B is less expensive, uh, more limited, but then for your average consumer, it was perfectly uh, right, cromulent. Right. Unless yeah. unless you're an expert in the field and have an extremely good ear and et cetera, et cetera. It yeah. was basically fine. And then later on, Dolby Labs would end up re- uh, releasing updates. They had a Type C come out that was... a uh, 
more sophisticated version. And then eventually they had a spectral recording, which was an even more sophisticated version of the same basic approach. Uh, Klaus would wind up continuing to to interact with Dolby in this industry. Yeah, he ends up creating a company called Advent Corporation, which would produce the first consumer cassette deck that had the Dolby technology in it. Now, that wasn't the first one that was a consumer product. The first consumer product was a reel-to-reel deck. So this is before cassettes, really, had had started to become a thing. But reel-to-reel recorders, if you were, you know, an amateur musician or even a professional musician, but you wanted to record your own stuff, then this is the kind of technology you were using at the time. So 1971, that's when Dolby Labs begins to experiment by going outside of just the audio recording industry. They're still very much, I mean, it's still audio centric, but they're looking at another industry that they can impact. And that, that was movies. And this yeah. would be, this would be a huge, huge player in, in A, Dolby's personal success and, and B, just the film industry. Yeah. So they're looking at making movies sound match the quality of the images because, uh, and Lauren, I saw that you, you pulled this into the notes. It's a perfect example. The problem was that movies at that time were relying on the same basic sound systems that had been developed decades earlier. So- oh yeah. There had been so many innovations in, um, in film quality itself over the past, over the recent past of, of the 1960s and 50s. But, Really, like Gone with the Wind was the industry standard of of audio production, right? And that had happened thirty five or forty years previously, right? So Dolby ends up looking into creating a system that would make much more clear, crisp sound for movies. Uh, and so the first film that gets released that has the Dolby treatment to it is a little film called Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. And oh, my droogies, if you don't video well what I say, things changing so scory these days and people quick to forget. Just remember that without this, our movies wouldn't sound nearly as good. And here, here's the reason why Dolby was so influential really early, early on. Because not only did it work, but it wasn't expensive for theaters to incorporate into their systems. Like this is this is not surround sound we're talking about here. This is just the sound quality. Yeah, this is just the the, the clarity, removing that hiss because the same hiss was apparent in uh, in film as it was in yeah in magnetic tape. Mm-hmm. So this was a way of being able to create this this crisp sound that theaters didn't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to Install retrofit. New. Yeah, they, right. they didn't have to do that. So. It ended up becoming an industry standard because it worked and it was cheap. And when it works and is cheap and becomes a standard, that means you have a constant supply of customers. So Dolby had struck gold with this. This was going to end up being one of the biggest businesses for Dolby uh, moving forward because you had an entire industry dependent upon that that particular methodology to make movies sound good. And it became one of those things where if you saw that the movie incorporated Dolby sound, you knew you were in for a special treat. Yeah. We'll be back to talk more about Dolby in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. All right. Getting back to Ray Dolby. So he was already seeing success in audio uh, uh so, well, audio hardware, both on the on the the professional side and on the consumer side, mm-hmm. he was starting to see success in the motion picture industry, um, and then starts to work on some other stuff for movies. In 1975, 
a lot of things happened. First of all, he relocated the headquarters of Dolby Labs. It had been in London, as we had said earlier. Uh-huh. They moved it over to San Francisco, California. Yep. So he goes over to, 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 uh, well, I was going to say San Fran, but boy, they hate that. Uh, I would also say Frisco, but they hate that more. We'll just say the city. So he takes it to the city in California. Well, they, they still keep their London office open. They still keep the London office open. And uh, they then introduce a multi-channel technology for films that becomes known as surround sound. So multi-channel is pretty self-explanatory. There are multiple channels for the sound and you have multiple speakers and you send different channels to different speakers to create the effect of sound surrounding the person in the in the uh, theater. So that way, if you have action on the screen that's heavily taking place on the left side, you can amplify the stuff that's on the left rather than on the right, and give the impression that you are right there in the middle of things. You can even isolate sounds so that particular sounds play either more on one side than the other or just on one side. And if you've been keeping up with surround sound both in the film industry and in just home entertainment centers, you know that the numbers keep going up. Like you had 5.1 and then like 6.1 and 7.1. That mostly, that really refers to the channels. Uh, right. It's the number of channels that are involved. And it's usually, uh, uh, I, I think it's five channels and then the point one is technically the effects channel. It's point one is technically the subwoofer. Because if you have a 5.1 uh, setup, it usually means that you have a front center speaker, front left, front right, back left, back right, and then you have the subwoofer. Oh, right, right. For, is, uh, for, for, for getting those, those vibrating yeah, the kind of soul shaking effects. Right. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. that, that's the, that's what makes thing, movies like, uh, like, like, uh, Event Horizon really watchable. You know, when you get that <laughs> sound. Yeah. Any, any time that you have the, the elder gods coming for you. Right. It's great if you can really feel it in your spleen. Yeah. If, if, um, if, if every time the Tyrannosaurus Rex takes a step in Jurassic right. Park, the water on uh, your table actually, actually shakes, then you know you've got a really good sound system. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, surround sound comes out and, uh, there were some, there were a few movies that, that took advantage of it early, but, uh, there was one in particular close to my heart that um, really leveraged it. Little independent film that came out in 1977. Star Wars. Uh, I was thinking Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But oh. Star Wars is good, too. <laughs> no, of course it was Star Wars. And both Star Wars and Close Encounters did take advantage of surround sound. Both did come out in 1977. And those movies ha- had so much going for them. I mean, they were capturing people's imaginations. Uh, they had incredible scores. John Williams worked on both. Uh, they were they were movies that hit just at the right time. And they, they, they were so big budget. They were such blockbusters. That was kind of the beginning of the entire blockbuster era. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a chicken and an egg issue of whether um, they caught on so well because they had this terrific sound quality. Um, or that the sound quality, because it was attached to these incredibly popular movies, thus became more popular. Right. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I would say that the sound was certainly uh, an integral part of what made those movies an amazing experience. Oh, right. Uh, and in fact, George Lucas gives incredible amounts of credit to Dolby and, and Dolby Labs for making Star Wars immersive. He said that, you know, that's what gave me the ability to create the experience I had imagined. Granted, he said that way back in the... Uh, in the late 70s, I suppose, when he went back and decided to ruin the Star Wars movies <laughs> with all the special editions, he was thinking that maybe he didn't really achieve what he had planned on achieving. That's kind of commentary. We'll skip on the rest of that. 
Anyway. Uh, but, but, but at any rate, this was, you know, this was a huge industry game changer. And, and I believe that tech stuff, uh, that, that Jonathan and Chris, you guys did a whole episode on surround sound back in 2010. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about how surround sound works, definitely go back and listen to that podcast. Yeah. Uh, we, it's from, um, August 23rd, 2010. The name is What is Surround Sound? If you're looking for it. Yep. Yep. So go check that out. Uh, cause we're not going to cover surround sound so much as we're going to re- uh, cover the signal to noise stretchers. At the end of this episode. Um, now, when we're, we're getting into a, an interesting time in Dolby Labs' uh, history at this point, in 1979, William Jasper joins Dolby Labs. And Jasper was a little different from the average person who worked at Dolby. Uh, basically, everyone who worked there at the time was a technician. Yeah, including Dolby himself. And so that works great when you're building products. But uh, any person who is especially handling a complex business will tell you if you don't have the expertise in things like managing a budget and, and uh, people and et cetera. Yeah, the, that your company can end up going astray, uh, even if you are working your hardest to make sure that doesn't happen. And and they were working their hardest. I mean, their but their response to having any kind of monetary problem was to innovate wonderful new technology, which is, you know, a fine thing for a business to do, but also so expensive. And, and also, yeah, it's also not the best plan. So right. essentially what, say, what what we're saying here is that anytime Dolby Labs got into some financial, uh, you know, like, like they're starting to creep toward the red, right? Like they're going to lose more money than they bring in. Then they would end up making some sort of new product and that would stave off that and make, make sure that they were doing okay. But that was a lot of short-term reactions and, Bringing Jasper on as a manager was sort of a long-term solution, saying, well, let's get someone in here who knows how to manage people. Uh, And that's exactly what Jasper's background was in. So Jasper starts by making some pretty tough choices. Uh, For example, he ends up laying off about a third of Dolby Labs employees in both the San Francisco and London offices. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said that the, the purpose for that was because of budgetary Problems like you know, you had to do it in order for the company itself to remain strong. Um, so they continue to innovate. Yeah, yeah. Despite all of those, all of those layoffs, um, you know, Jasper kind of got the system working again. And over the next decade, they would uh, they would introduce surround sound systems for television, compact discs, and laser discs. Yep. Uh, 1980, Dolby Labs would introduce the C-type Dolby's that I mentioned earlier in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, which are, you know, the higher grade consumer version of the, those the original type A st- stretchers, yep, right? Yep. Um, in 1982, they would introduce, uh, Dolby Surround for home video. Yep, right. Which, again, for people who are big home entertainment, uh, theater enthusiasts, that was a huge deal. In 1983, William Jasper would become the president of Dolby Labs. By the way, all through this time, uh, Ray Dolby retained ownership of the company. Yeah, he was the chairman of the board until uh, the the late the late aughts, the late two thousand something. So he he was um you know he was actually at this time the really the sole owner of the company. So it's still a privately held company at this time. In 1987, Ray Dolby becomes an officer of the most excellent order of the British Empire, which means he gets to add OBE at the end of his name. Mm-hmm. It does not mean he's a knight. No. Uh, knighthood would require a higher ranking than OBE, but still, he was not too more, shabby. more highly regarded in the eyes of Her Majesty the Queen than I. So far. Don't worry, Jonathan. I, You've um, got time. I'm, I'm still waiting. Um, she never returns my calls. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, I'll have her over for tea sometime. I, I swear it. 
1989, Dolby receives an Oscar for his contributions to motion picture sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1997, he received an award from then-President Bill Clinton. Still, well, we still call him President yes. Bill Clinton. You, He's not you, the current president. No, but you get that title forever. You once do. You, you know. I mean, I don't have that title, but one day... He doesn't return my calls either, for the, for the record. Uh, at any rate, he was awarded, uh, Dolby was awarded the National Medal of Technology and Innovation. And here is uh, Dolby's speech, which I love. The first part of your life is education. The second part is hard work. And then you get discovered and people start handing you awards. That's exactly <laughs> how it works. Short, Thank you, Dolby. Short and sweet. Uh, a very, uh, very modest man, but uh, very humble, according to all reports that I read, where he loved working on the stuff he worked on. And he loved also uh, we'll talk about some of his hobbies. He loved those very much as well. And, of course, his family, but was not the kind of person to, you know, revel in these things or boast in them. He was just very determined and enjoyed working on stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think he was just one of these wonderful people who had that drive to create all of this stuff and, right. and experiment. Um, for, for that, he was awarded in 2003 by the Emmys with a, uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. Yep. And, uh, 2004, he was inducted into the Royal Academy of Engineers. Uh, in 2005, Dolby Labs then finally goes public. And this move, uh, ends up getting, uh, uh, Ray Dolby around, like, his shares are worth around $200 million at that point. Yeah. He became a pretty much instant billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. That, that rocketed him to billionaire status. And in 2009, Dolby retires as the chairman of the company board. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, pretty, pretty remarkable time for Dolby Labs. And also, sadly, for Ray Dolby, because it was around this time also that he discovered that he had contracted Alzheimer's. Yeah. So, uh, and by 2011, he had officially retired. Because uh, even even at stepping down, he was still working on things. He was oh, still working yeah. on systems, and um, yeah. So that that kind of is the you know. And of course, twenty thirteen, he passed away. Mm-hmm. September twelfth. Mm-hmm. September twelfth. Yes. Yeah. So that that's a, a look at his life. But more than that, I mean, he, he obviously he won multiple awards. He won Oscar awards, Emmy awards, a Grammy award. He has a, a theater named after him. The theater where the Oscars are held every year. The um, Dolby Theater. Right. As a, as a tribute to him, his uh, Dolby Labs secured the name of that for the next 20 years. Yep. That, that was formerly the Kodak Theater. I've actually uh, visited that theater. And um, because I, I've stayed in Hollywood a couple times and I stayed near that theater, it's a really, it's a really interesting place. I mean, I, I, it's a, a cool design. I like it a lot. Um, and then... You know, let's talk about some of his hobbies, some of his interests. Uh, he was uh, he sat as the the director of the San Francisco Opera for a while. Huh. Um, he was also uh, on the he was a governor of the um, the symphony, the San Francisco Symphony as well. Obviously, that love of music doesn't go away. I oh, mean, sure, sure. And and when you're as big a person as Dolby or as as you know influential influential yeah. then I, i'm not sure if he was that tall I, that's not what i was saying <laughs> right. um he he also was an amateur pilot yep he loved sailing and boating he had a yacht he uh, also liked to drive for pleasure i loved reading about some of his driving adventures like he he drove a vintage jeep around for a while just to explore the san francisco area and california in general he also for a while enjoyed driving essentially what was the same thing as a, a tour bus like a like a tour bus that rock musicians would use. He liked driving one of those around. 
That is so cute. He's a very interesting character. And um, also he and his wife both were... Uh, were philanthropists. She still is, obviously. She's still very much involved in philanthropy. All oh, right. She she inherited his um his his multitudinous fortunes. Yep. And- yep. He was worth around uh, two point four billion dollars at the time of his death. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the projects they they donated money to was uh, they donated like thirty five million dollars to the University of California San Francisco for stem cell research projects. Yeah. And instead of uh, uh, flowers, when when they announced the the passing of Ray Dolby, the family said, well, in lieu of flowers, why not make a donation to and they listed a couple of different medical facilities that specifically do Alzheimer's research Mm -hmm. and a little bit into leukemia as well, which is what he uh, uh, actually passed away from. Right, right. So. Uh, you know, they they were very much active and and she still is in uh, scientific endeavors, not, you know, it's all sorts of philanthropic endeavors, not just the arts, but also the sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's and to really, I think, to be fair to Dolby, he would not uh, distinguish between the two. He felt art and science really were interwoven. Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's he he was so influential in bringing in bringing the two together, you know, it's you can't have you can't have art without the applications that allow more people to experience it. Yeah. So. And, you know, this has been a, a fun time to look back on on his life and his contributions. We've got more about the Dolby sound system coming up. But first, let's take another quick break. Let's take the last part of this podcast to really talk about what put Ray Dolby on the map? The the signal to noise stretchers. Like, what exactly was that all about, and how did they work? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what actually causes tape hiss? Okay, so magnetic tape, you know, has these little magnetic particles in it. That that's what stores, you know, an encoded mm-hmm. sound. It's, it's that grain structure that lets you store it. Right. right, and that grain structure actually creates that hissing noise. So it's the it's the medium itself that produces the hiss, which means you cannot. Remove. Cannot remove it because if you, if, you removed, a, if you had a smooth tape, then you wouldn't be able to store anything on mm-hmm. it. So that's the that's, you know, the kind of the the double edged sword. It allows you to store sound, but it also will create this hissing necessarily noise. creates. So mm-hmm. how do you handle this? Well, you know, first of all, it's really noticeable uh, if you have something that's playing at a low volume, particularly at a higher pitch. Mm-hmm. So, or something that's that's recorded at a, at a low volume. Right, right, right. So when you play it back, any of those low volume parts, you're going to be you're going to notice the hiss more. If it's a louder part in the recording, like let's say that you've recorded a a symphony, and the symphony starts off softly, but then builds to this Swells. big crescendo. Uh-huh. Well, during the crescendo, you may not notice any hiss at all. I mean, it's just the the sound itself is at an intensity where there's no noticeable hiss. But maybe at the softer, slower parts, you can kind of detect it. And that was what Dolby found to be infuriating and needed to be wiped off the face of magnetic tape. (laughs) So what he did was, uh, well, and also we should mention that this is more noticeable if you're playing the magnetic tape back at a slower speed. So reel-to-reel tape plays tape quickly compared to cassette tape, right? Right. So if you're doing reel-to-reel, that speed is about seven and a half inches per second, which equals out to be about 19 centimeters per second. But a cassette tape plays magnetic tape much more slowly at about one and seven-eighths inches per second, or about 4.8 centimeters per second. So cassette tapes move slowly compared to -to reel-to-reel. So at that slow speed with that narrow band, 
if you're playing a low volume, high pitch sound, you're going to hear a lot of hiss, mm -hmm. comparatively speaking. And and as Dolby was noticing that cassettes were becoming more of a thing, you know, more of a capable technology. Medium. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. He's like, well, we've got to address this because otherwise no one will ever want to listen to anything. I, I certainly won't. So, yeah. yeah. So what he decided to do is he, he came up with a system for both recording and the playback of of stuff that you were recording onto magnetic tape. Uh, the recording element was a, a, a system where you would boost low volume signals going onto the tape. So you would uh, artificially intensify them. You make them where they would essentially overpower the hiss. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you would play it back, a decoder would interpret this and be able to play it back at the low volume. Oh, right. So that you wouldn't get the, the high volume played back at additional volume. No, that as would be well, terrible. Because that would yeah. be right. Right. So, so here's how they would target the low volume parts. So parts that are quieter, that gets targeted by a system. And then it gets artificially boosted and then recorded to the magnetic tape. When it's played back at the, uh, you know, it, and the decoder says, okay, play this at a lower volume, the original volume that it was intended to be at, it reduces the hiss sound by the same amount that the signal itself had been boosted in the first place. And so the hiss is still there. It's just inaudible. Right. Because it's, it's so quiet. So, uh, and then since you're not treating the high volume parts, you don't have to worry about blowing out the, the capacity of the magnetic tape to record that sound and then uh -huh. distort everything. Uh, right. And, and the hiss also is not noticeable at the, or, or it's, not very noticeable at the high volume things, because as we said before, yeah, the sound is already drowning it out. Exactly. So in other words, it doesn't really remove the hiss. It kind of masks it, which is brilliant. I mean, it, you don't have to remove it if you're not able to hear it. Right? right. It just goes, this is not the hiss you're looking for. It's kind of to me, it's like theater. So if you're in a theater, like a stage theater and you're watching a play, you know, the set you see looks gorgeous, but if you were to walk behind that set, it would just be plywood and, you know, stands and stuff like that, because it only has to look good from the side that you can perceive it. So if you can't perceive the rest of it, don't don't bother building a set that's never going to be seen. Peter Jackson. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, that's, you know, that's kind of the, the lowdown, the basics of how this worked. Now, type A Dolby's did this with all frequencies of sound. So whether it was a low pitch or a high pitch, it would handle that all of it. So that way you would have... Uh, it would make all of the hiss the, the least amount of noticeable as, yeah, as possible. As, exactly. That yep. was really awesome grammar. Sorry, well, listeners. I, I do it too. <laughs> but the consumer version focused mainly on high pitches because that was where the problem was most noticeable. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't really bother with the low pitches so much because most consumer quality recording equipment, you didn't have to worry about it as much. It didn't have to be so good that this is the master recording for something. Sure. Then uh, the Type C, like we said, handled a slightly wider range of frequencies than the Type B did. And once you get up to, uh, I think it was Spectral Recording, where they introduced the ability to handle pretty much all volumes below a certain threshold and all frequencies. So it the goal was actually to do as little production as possible to remove hiss without affecting the final sound. Because the other risk you run whenever you do this sort of thing is that you actually affect the sound of the thing itself, where you might remove the hiss, but you also somehow otherwise affect the sound. And thus, it's not a good recreation of what the original sound was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a de delicate line to walk. 
Uh, but as technology improved overall, um, with, with, with computers and algorithms and everything that could go into this kind of process, yeah. it, um, they were able to, I mean, cause, cause keeping costs down was always an important part of this Dolby system. Yeah. And of course, we're talking here all about analog. Dolby himself <laughs> resisted the digital revolution quite a bit in the early 80s, but eventually Dolby Labs did come around, obviously, because you've seen Dolby Digital everywhere now. Sure. But at the time, uh, <laughs> the, the, the whole spectral recording idea, that was mostly to try and extend the life of analog recording beyond what most of the industry thought it was going to do you know they, yeah. they thought it was over spectral recording comes out they're like okay well you've extended the lifespan by like five years and eventually dolby digital would become a big player in that space but it was one of those things that that dolby himself resisted for a while he had a real soft spot in his heart for analog um he uh, felt felt yep. that digital was a little a little cold and you know early implementations were not the best, right? They oh, were certainly. they were imperfect. We'll yes, say. yes. Although Dolby Labs has certainly gotten into the digital space. Yes, and, as we and, said, and um, they they lead it now. So, or at uh, least they are a leader. Um, also, I mean, they're they're continuing to bring out new systems. Uh, for example, Dolby Atmos, which is a sixty-four speaker theatrical sound system. Some two hundred theaters installed it when it first came out. But what was really cool about this system, the 64 speaker system, is that it's so precise that you could even program a sound to come from only one of those 64 speakers. So if you wanted to pinpoint a specific point of, of origin for a sound in a theater, you could do that, uh, which would be interesting because it would mean that your experience of that film would depend heavily upon where you sat. Because if you sat closer to the speaker, it would be louder to you if you sat sat further away it'd be it would be softer but either way you'd well, be I'm sure that there's a, i mean there's always going to be a sweet spot in the theater and i i think that the general rule is that when when they're designing these kind of theater systems the the people designing them are, are sitting kind of two-thirds of the way back and dead center in the room yeah and and so if you really want to get the best sound system and holly holly fry did an excellent brain stuff episode about this if, yeah. uh, if any of you guys are watching brain stuff over on youtube or test tube but it's generally designed so that so that anyone will get a pretty good experience. Right, right. So let's uh, let's close this out with a couple of quotes from the man himself, from Ray Dolby. Um, here's one of uh, mine, and uh, it's it's the longer of the two. It's uh, I've often thought that I would have made a great 19th century engineer because I love machinery. I would have liked to have been in position to make a better steam engine or to invent the first internal combustion engine, to work on the first car. All my life, I've loved everything that goes. I mean, bicycles, motorcycles, cars, jeeps, boats, sail or power airplanes, helicopters. I love all of these things, and I just regret that I was born in a time when most of those mechanical problems had already been solved and what remained were electric electronic problems. That's but, kind of funny. <laughs> no, no, it's 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 beautiful though. Yeah. That's that's so and that really uh I especially having done a bunch of episodes relatively recently about some of the the, the build up to modern technologies right. and and talking about what was going on in the in the eight, in the 19th and, and early early 20th century. Yeah. That was just fascinating to me. Um another one that that I really loved and that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for future topics we can cover on Tech Stuff, let me know. The best way to do that is to hop on over to Twitter and use the handle TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.